You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to see you here this morning. I do hope you're having a good weekend so far. Um, this is our fourth and final uh, message in our series that we've been doing in the month of September called Can I Ask That? And for those of you who have joined us the last several weeks, you'll know that in this series, we have been uh, seeking to respond to some difficult questions that are being asked of the Christian faith and worldview. And today's question is perhaps the most controversial and difficult of them all. In fact, all week long, I've been asking myself over and over again, why did you choose this question? I mean, it's a little bit like I, I had the freedom, you know, Chris and I was like, which one do you want to do? And I chose this one. And I'm not sure why. And the reason for that is because today's question is, isn't Christianity homophobic? Now before we get into this, I just want to give a couple qualifiers right off the bat here. First off, um, just as Pastor Chris had the challenge and the disadvantage last week of speaking on race, diversity, and gender as a white male, I too have the disadvantage of speaking on homosexuality as a, as a straight married man. In fact, today's my 12-year anniversary. Uh, Faith and I have been married for 12 years. Um, so that, I, I acknowledge that, you know, I, I've, not, I've never struggled with same-sex attraction, and so I just, again, I want you to know that I realize that, and I realize that that somewhat shades how uh, this might come across. But I do want you to know that I have tried to research and read widely on this subject, and particularly, I've tried to read this week books and articles written by folks who themselves have struggled with same-sex attraction. Now, the other thing I want to say here at the beginning is that uh, again, this is a highly controversial and difficult topic, and I would just say that there's a, there's a good chance that you're going to disagree with something I say today. Either you won't like uh, what I said, or you won't like how I said it. Maybe you'll think I'm being overly harsh, or maybe you'll think I'm being overly sensitive. I, I don't know, but I, I'm just guessing that, that because of the nature of this topic, it lends itself to strong opinions and views on how to address and how to handle it. And, and so if you find yourself getting frustrated at me during this talk, I would just ask that you hang in there, that you listen to everything that I'm trying to say, and then weigh that against the scriptures. And then if afterwards, if you have a question, or if you need me to try to clarify something I said, then please, uh, you can come and talk to me afterwards, um, if I haven't already hopped in my car and, and sped out of here. But uh, <laughs> you, can, you can try to find me. Um, change my email, all of that. But uh, anyway, I invite you to do that. But before we go further, let me just pause. Let me pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide our time this morning. Father, thank you that you're here with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Or even as we just sang a few moments ago, Lord, feeling your presence in this room, we're thankful for that. And I do just ask that you would guide guide our time, Lord, that you would help me, you would lead us. And Lord, we pray that your truth, your, uh, just your revealed truth would come to light. And I just pray for all of us, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the way I want to try to tackle this today is to uh, tackle this question, is to break it down into three additional questions. And the three questions I want to ask and then try to respond to are this. Number one, why is this question of aren't Christians homophobic, why is it even a question? In other words, why would a question like this exist? 
Secondly, though, then I want to ask the question, what does the Bible actually teach about homosexuality? And then thirdly, I want to attempt to ask, how should the church respond to all of this? And so starting with this first question here of why is this even a question, well, I think uh, the first thing we have to do is we have to try to define what the word homophobic even means. Now again, uh, like with any word, there's a range of definitions, but, but here are uh, some definitions from some of the more well-known dictionaries. Merriam-Webster defines it as this, an irrational fear of aversion to or discrimination against homosexuality or homosexuals. The Oxford Dictionary defines it this way, having or showing a dislike of prejudice against homosexual people. Now, one of the things that makes a definition like that a little hard or a little tricky is you sort of have to break down what exactly does someone mean when they use the word discrimination or prejudice. If by that they simply mean that you're discriminating against me because you disagree or because you don't embrace my view or my lifestyle, then I'm not sure that's a fair definition. However, though, if by discriminating they mean something more like verbal or physical assault, then I think that's a different thing. So again, this word even here, homophobic, it's a little problematic until you know exactly what someone has in mind or what they mean by prejudice or discriminating. However, though, if we just focus on the first part of those definitions as it relates to irrational fear or aversion to or dislike of homosexuals, which I think is classically more how the word has been used, then I think if we're we're honest, then I think we have to admit that, yes, many Christians have been and continue to be, by those definitions, homophobic. Now, to clarify, I don't think that Christianity in and of itself is homophobic, and hopefully I'll be able to show that throughout this message. But the fact still remains that some, perhaps many Christians, have failed in this area. Now, there's a lot that we could say about this. I mean, if time permitted, we could look at the gay rights movement, which was birthed and sparked by the Stonewall Riots, which happened in 1969 back in New York. We could look at the response of the religious right and the moral majority to the gay rights movement and and some of the awful and unchristlike things that were said and done through those groups. And really the kind of the whole culture war that has been birthed out of all of that. But, But instead of looking at others, instead of talking about others' failures in this area, I thought I would just share with you some of my own failings. You see, I personally have participated in being cruel and unloving towards those who are same sex attracted. Whether it's been through telling inappropriate jokes or calling someone gay as a way to make fun of them or teasing someone that they're gay simply because they don't fit certain masculine or or feminine stereotypes. I mean, to my shame, I, I have done all of that. Now, granted, that was, I think anyway, mostly before I started following Jesus. It was before I was a Christian. But, but even still, what I've recently realized about myself, particularly since having children, is that I do in fact still struggle to love and to not be afraid of the homosexual community. And to not think of them or treat them like they're some sort of enemy. And this really hit home to me uh, in the last several years when one of my kids had on their soccer team two sets of same-sex parents who had a child on the team as well. And I'm not sure why it caught me off guard. I mean, uh, you know, Faith and I, we do live in the Clintonville community. And uh, it, for those of you familiar with Columbus, it is a very progressive part of town. And, and it does have a fairly large homosexual population. And yet, the reality is, is that it still kind of caught me off guard. 
And not only did it catch me off guard, but it also made me kind of upset. And one of the things that made it difficult was that my child became pretty good friends, uh, in particular with one of these children from one of these families. And I think part of what got exposed in that and part of what I've come to realize is that I don't have, I've struggled to have a lot of empathy and compassion for those individuals. You see, as homosexuality has been increasingly accepted and even celebrated in our culture, I think that I have become increasingly resentful. And there's probably multiple reasons for that, whether it's uh, fear of losing religious freedom or just fear of being labeled a bigot or being accused of hate speech or whatever. But in terms of how it's hit me in regards to my kids, I think one of the things that's made it it's hard is it's, it's forced us as parents to have conversations with them that we haven't wanted to have yet. I mean, when one of your you know, younger kids says to you, hey, do you know that so-and-so on the soccer team has two moms? It kind of forces your hand to talk about some pretty grown-up things, some things that are complicated and that are hard for a kid to understand. And so again, if I'm just being honest and transparent here, instead of having love and empathy and a desire to get to know and befriend people in that community, I have instead, to my shame, had resentment, frustration, and even fear towards them. And so again, as we come to this question, this accusation even of, isn't Christianity homophobic? I think what I would say is this. I don't think Jesus or Christianity is, again, depending on how you define certain words in that definition. But what I would say is that some Christian, Christians, perhaps many Christians, myself included, have failed in regards to empathizing and loving the LGBT community. And so again, like the question with violence we looked at a few weeks ago, there definitely is an aspect to this question that as Christians we need to own up to and we need to repent of. And to say that when we have acted in these certain types of ways, we have not represented Jesus or Christianity well. In fact, we have actually misrepresented them. And for that, we need to say that we're sorry. And so as we think about this first question here of why is this even a question, well, it's a question because Christians, like myself, have failed in this. And again, there's so many other things in history and and even current things that I could point to to further prove this point, but we'll just leave it there for now and go to our next question, which is this. Well, then what does the Bible actually teach about homosexuality? And when it comes to this question of what the Bible teaches, one of the things we need to realize is that there are only about five or six passages that directly deal with this topic. Now, I say that because as Sam Alberry in his book, Is God Anti-Gay?, has pointed out, which, by the way, if, if you want to read some more on this, it's an excellent book. He does a great job. It's very small. It's less than 100 pages. And I'll be quoting from it uh, quite a bit today. But, but on this point of there only being a small number of passages that, uh, that directly address homosexuality, Alberry says this, At the very least, this shows us that the Bible is not fixated on homosexuality. It is not what the Bible is about. Our understanding of what the Bible does say on the subject, therefore, needs to be read in light of the bigger themes of Scripture. What the Bible says about homosexuality does not represent everything God wants to say to homosexual people. It is not the whole message of Christianity. Now, in saying that, Alberry is not, he in no way is implying that these five or six passages aren't important, nor is he saying they're not clear. But what he is saying is that they are not the point or the entirety of the Christian message. 
And so let's look at some of these here. We won't be able to cover all of them in detail, but let's look at some of the more important ones and see what it is we can learn about what the Bible says about this topic. Now, one place where the scriptures address this issue directly in the Old Testament is in the law of Moses. And the two verses which address it uh, are Leviticus 18, verse 22, and Leviticus 20, verse 13. Now, they are both essentially a part of one big unit uh, in, in the law of Moses, in Leviticus, and, and so you can kind of consider them as just one passage. But here's what they say. Leviticus 18.22 says this. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13 says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, and they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, the context of both of these passages, it's in the broader, uh, what's being dealt with in the law at this point is the broader topic of sexual immorality. And so it's not just homosexual behavior that's being singled out here. I mean, in this same section, there's uh, laws and commands dealing with things like idolatry, bestiality, incest, and so on. And so again, it's not as if homosexuality is the only thing being condemned or addressed, nor is it the only sin that the Old Testament refers to that God calls an abomination. Now what some have tried to do is they've said that Christians have been inconsistent when they appeal to these verses to condemn homosexuality because, again, there's, there's other Old Testament laws that Christians don't obey anymore. You know, things like eating, not eating shellfish or wearing fabric of mixed, uh, or clothes with mixed fabric. And so is that true? Are Christians inconsistent? Do we just pick and choose laws that we like or that suit us? Well, there's a lot of things we could say about that and, 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 talking against, and, and defending ourselves against that, but probably the simplest way to answer this specific objection is just by appealing to the fact that the New Testament itself reaffirms the validity of the Old Testament prohibition of homosexual behavior. And anytime we see the New Testament reaffirm or restate a, a command, we know that it is still binding for us today. And so because of that, let's move now and look at some of these New Testament passages that talk about this. And the first place that it comes up in the New Testament is Romans chapter 1. And actually, I think that this is probably the, the main passage that deals with this. And really, as the, the context of the book of Romans in general, and definitely here at the beginning in these early chapters, is, is that Paul is out to show and to prove that all people, the whole world, is unrighteous. Whether it's Jews or whether it's Gentiles, all are in need of salvation through Jesus Christ. That's why in chapter 3, he re, uh, quotes a psalm that says, None are righteous. No, not even one. And so that is what Paul is doing. However, though, uh, as Paul starts out here in chapter 1, he seems to be particularly going after Gentile pagan cultures. And one of the things he says, part of his argument, is that God has clearly in creation revealed himself plainly to human beings. And even though it's been plain, even though he has revealed himself through the creation, people have still chosen to reject him. And instead of worshiping him as the creator, they have instead chosen to worship the creation. And because of that, they are now experiencing God's wrath. And the thing about what, when, God, when he's describing God's wrath here, in one sense it's very different than like what we would picture. Because what Paul says is, he says, God's wrath is, is giving people over. It's letting people do whatever it is they want to do. 
You see, often we think of God's wrath as, you know, kind of fire and brimstone coming down out of heaven, and it, it has been that. But here, God's wrath looks like letting you follow your own desires unchecked. And so in the context of all of this, in verse 26, Paul says this, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now one of the things that makes this specific passage interesting and somewhat unique is that it's the only passage in the Bible which makes reference to women and homosexuality as well as to men. Now one of the reasons that that's important is because it shows us that God is against all forms of homosexual behavior, not, just as some have tried to argue in recent years, the Roman practice of pederasty. And what pederasty is, is it was a, a common practice that involved older men having sex with adolescent boys. And so what some have tried to do recently, some scholars, is to say, no, 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 no. You evangelical Christians, you've got it all wrong. What the Bible is condemning is that practice, that pederasty, not homosexuality as it relates to two consenting adults in a monogamous relationship. And again, to that point, I think I would just say this. I don't think so. Paul very clearly is condemning women for homosexual activity as well as men. And because of that, that cannot be, he cannot be condemning just this one practice of pederasty or anything like that. Now the reason why Paul here, uh, the reason why he gives us for why homosexual acts are wrong and are a sign of God's judgment is because they go against what is natural. They go against nature. And I realize in the, the LGBT community, that's super offensive to say that. But what Paul is saying is that homosexuality is against God's design for marriage and sexuality. You see, even though Genesis 1 and 2, which describe the creation narrative, even though they don't directly uh, deal with homosexuality, they are nevertheless instructive because they show us their God's original design and intent for sex and marriage. And what we see when we read those chapters is that both sex and marriage were God's ideas. God invented them. And because of that, because they were his ideas, because he invented them, he has the right to determine and define their best use and context. And what we see when we read the scriptures is that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that sex is only to be confined in that context and in that covenant relationship. And that's not because God is a prude or because he doesn't like sex or because he doesn't want humans to enjoy it, but because he knows that that is the only context that this gift can be truly enjoyed and can lead to human flourishing. Now, it's precisely because of this design and this intention for sex here that Paul says in Romans 1 that homosexual activity or behavior is against nature. It's unnatural. Now, there's a lot more that we could say about that, but for, uh, the time, uh, for the sake of time, let's move on and look at the other two passages which deal directly with this. They're 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. 1 Timothy 1, 8-11 says it this way, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And when you look at those lists, I think you should be able to find yourself somewhere on that list, right? And if not, I'm going to prove it to you right now. How many of you have downloaded an app and it said, you know, there was some sort of agreement and you checked the box that said, I read and I agreed to all of this? <laughs> you are a liar and you are on this list. But if you know Jesus Christ, you have been sanctified and you've been washed and you need to repent of that lie. I've been doing it all week as I've realized that. I just did it the other day when I got a new iPad. But um, Now the reason both of those passages are important is because they are very spe specific and explicit in condemning homosexual acts. But another thing about them that I don't want to lose here is that they show us that homosexual acts in one sense are not in a different category from other sin. Nor particularly with 1 Corinthians, nor is it inescapable. Again, quoting Sam Albury here, he says this about these passages. He says, homosexual sin is not unique. Paul's list include other forms of sexual sin, sexual immorality and idolatry, and it includes non-sexual forms of sin, drunkenness and theft, for example. Homosexual sin is incredibly serious, but it is not alone in being so. It is wicked, but so is greed. God will judge those who indulge in it, but he will also judge thieves. Albury says this about the 1 Corinthians passage specifically. He writes, however ingrained it may be in someone's behavior, homosexual conduct is not inescapable. It is possible for someone living a practicing gay lifestyle to be made new by God. Temptations and feelings may well linger. That Paul... He, it, that Paul is warning his re readers not to revert back to their former way of life suggests that there is still some desire too. But in Christ, we are no longer who we were. Those who have come out of an active gay lifestyle need to understand how to see themselves. What defined them, what defined us then, no longer defines us now. And look, I know I've gone through these passages quick, and there's so many things we could say about them. I mean, there's been whole books dedicated to addressing them. But as we just even simply step back now and look at the Bible as a whole, what we see is that it is absolutely clear, and it is absolutely consistent in its view of sex and sexuality. Which is why Alberry, in his section of the book where he's talking about these passages, he sums it up by saying this, in each instance where the Bible directly addresses homosexual behavior, it is to condemn it. The consistent teaching of the Bible is clear. God forbids homosexual activity. 
Given what the Bible says about God's purpose of sex and marriage, this should not surprise us. Now, one of the things that makes that statement from Albury so powerful is that he himself is a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. And because of that, Albury has every motivation for wanting the scriptures to say something different than that. And yet he argues that the Bible is very clear on this issue. Now, one of the things I want to say in light of all of this is that one of the things we have to keep in mind is that the Bible, the Bible's sexual ethic puts constraints on everyone, not just people who are gay. Because at the end of the day, what the Bible teaches is that sex is only designed and it is only acceptable in the confines and in the context of the marriage commitment between a man and a woman for life. And so what that means is that a married person can't have sex with just anyone they want. They can only have sex with their spouse. And so there's a restraint there. What it also means is that someone who is not married can't have sex at all. It doesn't matter if it's their long-term boyfriend or girlfriend. It doesn't matter if it's a one-night hookup. It doesn't matter if it's their fiancé. The Bible says that it is between a man and a wife in the marriage commitment. That also means that pornography is out. Jesus said that even to look in the Sermon on the Mount, to even look at someone lustfully, is to commit idolatry. And so you can't, that, that, there's a constraint on that as well. And so again, what we have to understand is that the Bible's sexual ethic puts constraints on every single person. It doesn't just single out one sexual action or one group. But not only that, the other thing that the Bible shows us, is, and particularly as you look at the life of Jesus, is that sex is not essential in order to be a fully fulfilled human being. You see, our culture has made sex ultimate. It has made sex into an idol. I mean, in our culture right now, the idea of living a life without it is portrayed as ludicrous, impossible, and even unjust. And yet the Bible clearly teaches that someone can be single and therefore celibate and live a completely fulfilled and meaningful life. I mean, Jesus Christ himself was never married, nor did he have sex, and yet he is absolutely, he absolutely lived a meaningful and satisfying life. And so if that's what the Bible teaches about sex and about homosexuality specifically, let's go to our last question here, and, this is, and that is this. How should the church respond to all of this? As we think about this last question, I think one of the first things we should say or the first things we should do is we should admit that we have and confess that we have oftentimes, as followers of Jesus, we've blown it when it comes to loving the LGBT community. We've all too often treated homosexuality as an issue to be fought against, not a people group to be loved. We've seen it as a problem and not a person. You see, when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, you see him over and over again engage and love those who are far from God, including those who are sexually broken. Now granted, we don't have in the scriptures an account of Jesus specifically loving and engaging someone in the homosexual uh, community or in that lifestyle, but the reason for that is because of his context and the culture where he lived. However, though, based on how he engaged and loved those who were sexually immoral and broken, I have no doubt that if he lived in a different culture, he would have. You see, Jesus so pushed the boundaries in his religious culture that they actually accused him of being a friend of sinners. In fact, we saw that a few months ago in our series in the Gospel of Luke, uh, back when we covered chapter 7. 
And one of the things that's interesting is, is right after Jesus says, you say that I'm a friend of tax collectors and sinners, then immediately Luke gives us a story of Jesus where he is letting a sinful woman, i.e. a prostitute, anoint his feet with oil and wipe them with her hair as an act of worship. And then the religious leader whose house Jesus is at eating this meal while this is happening is completely dumbfounded. He's thinking to himself, if Jesus knew who this woman was and, and the way that she lived, he would never let her touch him. And yet Jesus, knowing his thoughts, rebukes him. He looks at Simon and he says, he says Simon, you know, I, I've been here and you've not done any of these things. You've not offered me any of these customary things. And yet this woman has not ceased to show me love. And so he ends up rebuking the religious leader for his attitude and mindset, and instead he turns to the sinful woman, and he tells her that her sins are forgiven, and he says that your faith has saved you. I mean, in Jesus' day, that, and even in our day, that would be absolutely shocking and unthinkable. But it's not like that's the only story that we have of Jesus loving and engaging someone who is sexually broken. In fact, my favorite is probably John 4 with the Samaritan woman. Many of you know that story. Again, it's a Samaritan woman, so it's someone of a different race, a, a race that was looked down upon by the Jewish people. She had been married five, uh, divorced five times, and the guy she was currently living with was not her husband. I mean, that's like, you know, that's like Elizabeth Taylor status right there. Um, I didn't, I was, we were watching an Elizabeth Taylor movie recently, and I was like, isn't there something about there? So I Wikipedia and was like, oh, okay. Um, so, but that's who this is. And yet, Jesus perfectly balances grace and truth with her. He meets the Samaritan woman where he is at, and he loves her, but he calls her to something greater. And as a result of Jesus uh, befriending and loving this woman, she becomes a super effective and powerful evangelist for Jesus. In fact, in John 4, in verse 39, it says this. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. And so here again is Jesus stepping out and risking his reputation in order to love and to care for someone who was far from God and who was living a sexually broken life. Which I think makes sense when we, you know, we sang it earlier in that song, Rescuer. When Jesus talked about his own mission, his own purpose for coming, he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. And so again, as we think about this question of how should the church respond to the LGBT community, I think what we have to say is that we have to respond uh, by being the way that Jesus was. And here's the thing. Jesus was really big on grace and love, but that does not mean that he was soft on sin. In other words, uh, another story where we see Jesus engage someone is, is the story in John 8 with the woman caught in idolatry. And in that story, not only does Jesus extend to her grace and forgiveness, but he also tells her to go and sin no more. And so again, somehow Jesus was able to perfectly maintain this balance of grace and truth. And as his followers, we need to strive to do the same. And so just to wrap up here, I want to get real practical in terms of how I, I would submit to you that I think the church should respond to all of this. And one of the areas in which I think the church really needs to grow in is in helping those in our community, in our churches even, who struggle with same-sex attraction. You see, because of how the church has treated this in the past, I think in a, a lot of churches, if not most churches, people who struggle with same-sex attraction don't feel safe enough in order to share that struggle with someone in their church, whether it's with a pastor or a life group leader or even a friend. 
And so because of that, I think we need to work really hard to create an environment where people who experience same-sex attraction can talk about it. And when they do talk about it, we need to not freak out on them and treat them differently than we would someone else sharing a sin in their life. Or saying, that not, not even a sin, just this is something I'm struggling with. It'd be someone like someone saying, I'm struggling with, with looking at porn or lying or whatever sin they might be tempted by. And with that, I think what else we have to do is we have to be really clear on, on showing the difference between what is sin and what is temptation. I mean, if you find yourself being attracted to someone of the same sex, there's nothing in the Bible that says that that alone in of itself is a sin. The Bible very explicitly condemns homosexual acts and behavior, but it does not list same-sex attraction as a sin. You can be attracted to something, but that doesn't mean uh, if you don't follow through with that action that you've committed. It only means you've sinned if you follow through with that action. So again, I just think it would be very helpful for us to be clear on what is temptation and in what is actual sin. I think another thing the church needs to do is to not perpetuate non-biblical stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. I mean, look, I have two daughters, and one of them loves pink and loves princesses and dresses, and the other one hates all of that. Now, I'm not going to freak out on either one and insist that they enjoy or look like whatever stereotype that uh, that the culture is pushing that the Bible does not command. And so I just think we need to stop that. We need to stop promoting cultural stereotypes and instead promote biblical views of masculinity and femininity. I think another thing we need to do that Sam Alberry and, and many others have pointed out is that as a church, we need to, to grow in honoring singleness. And in doing so, we need to have a robust understanding of church as family. You see, earlier, I, I, I sought to debunk this notion that in order to live a meaningful and satisfying life, sex and marriage have to be a part of it, right? That's just not true. The Bible shows us over and over again, whether it was in the life of Jesus or Paul or others, that you do not need to be married, nor does sex have to be a part of your life in order to be fully human. I really appreciate what Rebecca McLaughlin had to say about this point in her book, Confronting Christianity. She wrote this. If we reduce Christian community to sexual relationships in the nuclear family, we are utterly failing to deliver on biblical ethics. This point is underlined by the Bible's view of singleness. Jesus himself never married. While Paul commends marriage, he values singleness even more. Single people are vital to the church family, which is the primary family unit in Christian terms, and should experience deep love and fellowship with other believers. We're Where church culture inhibits this by overemphasizing marriage and parenting, Christians need to fight for culture change and embody the biblical reality that the local church is truly their family. Enabling same-sex attracted Christians who choose to remain single to thrive in church means becoming more biblical, not less. In another book I read this week that uh, had in it a, a quote from a, a single Christian who was choosing to be celibate. She said this, she said, I can live without sex, but I can't live without intimacy. You see, the Bible describes the church as a family, not as a, a cute or a convenient way to talk about it, because, but because that is what it actually is. You see, in a family, it's not right and it's not healthy for someone to feel left out or not included or not valued. 
And yet, unfortunately, we have knowingly or unknowingly done that to our single brothers and sisters in Christ. And both for their sake, for those who struggle with same-sex attraction, and for those singles who just have no desire to get married, or who that just will never be an option for them, we need to act like the family that God has called us to be. Now, in terms of engaging those outside the church, I think one of the first things we need to do is for each of us to examine our own hearts and our own actions to see if there's any hatred or fear or prejudice against those who are in that community. And so I think we need to examine ourselves, and I think as part of that, we need to to commit to stamping out homophobia when we see it being displayed in the lives of other Christians. When we see someone telling a joke uh, that's inappropriate or calling them out, when we see someone expressing maybe a disgust or a hatred towards those in that community, just saying that that's not okay. Christian theologian Preston Sprinkle said it this way, evangelical leaders need to stand for truth and putting homophobia to death is part of standing for truth. Jesus is truth and Jesus is certainly not idolater phobic, tax collector phobic, centurion phobic, and he is certainly not homophobic. Some people will think you are pro-gay if you stand up for gay people, and that's fine. If people mistake your unconditional love for gay people as an affirmation of homosexual behavior, then don't worry about it. You're in good company. Religious people often thought that Jesus was a sinner because he had many friends who were sinners, yet he kept on befriending sinners. Don't buy the lie that if you love people too much, you must not care about sin. The gospel teaches us otherwise. Jesus cared so much about sin that he surrounded himself with sinners. Let's go and do likewise. And on this point, I think each of us could do, as individuals, we should maybe consider reaching out and befriending someone from that community. Not to turn them into a problem to fix or a project, but to see them as a friend to love. Christian author and apologist Mark Middleberg wrote this. Like Jesus... We need to become the friend of sinners, eagerly looking for opportunities to share his love and truth with them. Nothing will cleanse us of prejudice faster than getting into a genuine friendship with a member of whatever group we have tended to look down upon. It's really hard to hate people who have become your friends. The last thing I want to say on this, though, is this. In order for us to truly love the LGBT community well, It's going to require us, though, to be honest with them about what we believe and share truth with them, but in doing so in a way that that displays grace and truth. You see, ultimately, as followers of Jesus, we have to stay faithful, and we have to stand strong on what the Bible teaches in regards to homosexual behavior, and we have to do that no matter what and where culture goes with it. No matter how much pressure gets put on us, We have to to stay true to what the Word of God says. But we have to do so in a way that is gentle, in a way that is loving. You see, as Christians, we are not loving the LGBT community if we compromise on the Bible's sexual ethic. In fact, it's the opposite of that. One book I read this week, which was such an encouragement, I'm so glad. I think someone here um, in the the body uh, sent it to me or, or suggested I read it, but It's a new book out called A Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption. And again, it just came out in the last year or so, and it was one of the most encouraging books that I've read in a long time. And the book was about, uh, it's written by a guy named Beckett Cook, and in it he tells his story of becoming a Christian. 
And so to close here, I'm going to show you a, a video clip of Beckett sharing his story about how he became a Christian.